Welcome to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. And here we are. It's another edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Howdy, everybody. I'm Harry Alexander. Bunker de France is here. Yes, I am. And in Los Angeles, it is Todd Roberts. And, Hello, uh, gentlemen. I am so happy to be here with and, you all. And our guest is um, um, author and film historian Michael F. Blake. Michael, welcome to the program. A gentleman Always good to be with you guys. Yeah, yeah, and we are streaming live from the White Stallion Ranch today. Uh, this is our Movie Saturday program. We've uh, not been with you the past couple of weeks because the crud hit the range here. And uh, finally, it has been driven away. Yes. Uh, I, got, I, I hired some henchmen from Rena Hench, and they took care of it for oh, me. Oh, yeah. Look, it's just so good to see you <laughs> turned up be, a little bit it's here. Good, yeah. it, it's good to be seen. Trust <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs> Beats the opposite, yeah. All right. We're going to be doing the movies of uh, John Ford. Blake um, on Ford. Blake like on that. Ford. Um, <clears throat> Ford has, I don't know, what do you... Everybody seems to have an opinion, good or bad, about John Ford. I read a review of a John Ford movie, and maybe I can find it in my history, uh, internet history, but the guy did not like John Ford at all. And so he grudgingly uh, reviewed the movie and ended up saying, well, I guess it's okay. (laughs) You know, I mean, like, really? (laughs) Well, you know, I'm looking this stuff up. I come across, you know, Mr. Tarantino's opinion of Ford. And I thought, gee, what a little man. Because, you know, he's a, you know, Tarantino is a genius when it comes to talking about film. Yeah, he, yeah. He's like, he knows every detail in the right. world. Yet he doesn't acknowledge the fact that uh, Kurosawa did Yojimbo based basically on, on Ford and that that's Tarantino's favorite film and he bases his films off of, it's like, yeah. yeah. Well, Give Mike, me a break. Well, Michael, you you are a film historian. You uh, uh, have run a Facebook group uh, of John Ford director and the John Ford Cavalry trilogies. What is it about John Ford that makes him so great? It's the story. It's the visual painting that he does with the cameraman. He once said that he he thought as a cameraman first and a director second. Interesting. Uh, you look at almost any of his films, black and white or color, and it's like a painting come to life. Uh, there's a shot in she wore a yellow ribbon of the Indians riding across the top of a ridge, and it's like a Charlie Russell painting come to life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he also had a way of he he threw out a lot of dialogue. No. Uh, that didn't mean anything. He cut to the, literally cut to the chase. Pick out words here, words there. Something that Mr. Tarantino needs to learn. Yeah. Uh, Tarantino is a legend in his own mind. Yes. Um, if you took if away really all the dirty words, right, he wouldn't have anything to say. If I really said it, what I think of the guy, your show would be in a lot of trouble. Yeah, that's okay. So let's just let's just say that we like uh, trouble. Yeah. His talent is all in his mouth. Hey, hey, we've um, already been banned from YouTube, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a uh, I have no, I have no use for Tarantino as a director. He takes too long. He's too much in love with his words. But going back to the old man, as they used to call him, 
he had a way of telling he he and Bill, William Wyler, William Wellman, uh, Capra, Howard Hawks, all those guys that started out in the silent era, they could tell a movie. They told a movie with images, mm-hmm. and you watch you watch the opening of Hawks's Rio Bravo. Mm-hmm. The first five minutes or so, all it is is music and sound effects. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you get the idea of what's coming up. Uh, Ford could just simply, with a gesture, with look at look at Maureen O'Hara's death scene in the Long Gray Line, and then you see uh, 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 Tyrone Power's reaction, and only a couple of words of dialogue are spoken. Uh, you look at that beautiful scene, which I think is a highly underrated movie of Ford's called The Last Hurrah mm. where Spencer Tracy has lost the election Yes, and he's walking through the park at night and in the background this is this big victory parade for the guy that uh, beat him out and it it says everything that, that pages of dialogue couldn't express that was the thing with Ford he could get across what he could take because I've been going through the entire the last two weeks I've spent working on the comparison of the script from Rio Grande to the movie mm-hmm. and you see how much Ford cut and changed things and cut things down or let I mean the in the script Maureen's character comes off as a real witch uh, in many scenes in the dialogue her change doesn't really come across in the script, but you watch what Ford does with the two of them, and it's there's that scene when they're at dinner just looking at each other, and if that isn't an erotic scene without being erotic, mm-hmm. I don't know what is. Well, one of the and things... Of course, go ahead. No, I was just saying Ford cast them in the roles because it was a test for the upcoming Quiet Man. The uh, uh, in our newsletter, <clears throat> pardon me. In our newsletter, we do um, little bits of like cowboy movies, cowboy trivia, things like that that Bunker does. And uh, one of them in the latest newsletter, uh, this quote from John Ford: When asked how one should watch a motion picture, John Ford said, "Look at the eyes. The secret is people's faces, their eye expression yep. through their movements." You know, there's a, the, you, what you were just saying to kind of continue on it. Uh, in Fort, Fort Apache, uh, when Mildred Natwick watches the troop ride off, you know, and, and George O'Brien is going to his to his final demise, that scene's repeated at the end when they, you know, at the end of the movie when everyone's riding out and uh, she's there, a widow, and the new mother, uh, Shirley Temple, was there, and it's a repeat of that scene. Almost the shot is almost exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Ford and Doorways uh, has can be seen in many of his films. Yeah, you know, most notably, of course, is Searchers. <laughs> yeah. And everyone thought, oh, that's the only one. But then you watch other films. You watch Scene and Stagecoach yeah. when uh, the uh, Chris Penn Martin is telling them, I've got a horse out back if you want to go. It's, it's, it, there, there it is. There's 
there are shots in the various other films where you can see, oh, searchers. You say searchers, but it was predating it. Yeah. Um, he just he just knew things, and you know he would he would go and he'd do his homework at night, and then he'd come out on the set. Harry Carey Jr. told me he said, you you know he'd say, oh, do this, and then you think he just thought of it. And he didn't. Now, in some cases, he did, such as in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, when uh, Victor McLaughlin comes out and he says, now, men, there's going to be women on this trip, so watch them words. And somebody yells, watch that grammar. Well, that was in the script. <laughs> but what wasn't in the script is the dog. And he had told McLaughlin, notice the dog and pet it. And he wanted him to say Irish Setter. And McLaughlin kept saying Cocker Spaniel. And Ford Ford was, you know, you could see the steam coming out of his ears. Wayne was doing everything not to laugh hysterically because he thought it was funny. And But he finally got it. But you watch that in the scene and it just seems so effortless and like, you know, there Ford picked something because he knew it would work. But other things that looked like he just thought it up he thought of it the night before or maybe even weeks before. You never know. Uh, Wingate Smith said, and he was Ford's uh, first assistant director for men, almost all of his films. He was also father and uh, uh, brother-in-law to Ford. His sister was Mary, who married Ford. He said he would, if Ford was sitting in his chair by himself, you never approached him because he was working on a problem or he was working on an idea and you never interrupted him you never went up to him and or he would go up and say john do you want this or that he waited you know because he knew ford was working on something well uh, let me ask you this michael because i you know, i i i, I kind of get this is my feeling of ford is that like he would work and he never worked in the dark. He knew everything. It was like Hitchcock in that sense. He knew everything that he wanted, but he didn't. He didn't uh, communicate that in direct communications. He would do it by having a person do something or telling them not to do something, and the simplicity. Because I get the feeling that he knew what the, what he was going to get from that actor before the actor yes. even knew it himself. Yes. And Wayne, Wayne said in an interview, when they'd rehearse, he'd never say, you must come through this door, or you must pick this up, or you must do that. He kind of let it evolve, but he didn't over-rehearse. And Ford never overshot. Ford, mm-hmm. <laughs> unlike directors today that don't know when to go home, Ford <laughs> cut as he shot. So he he might shoot a master scene up to a certain point in the script, say, okay, we got enough there. Let's go in and we'll do a close-up here, a bit part here, close-up here. Boom, they were done. So that way, the producers could never screw around with them, especially as because it was all, it had to be cut his way. But he also, he, he didn't like to do excessive takes. Ford said, if you start doing excessive takes, you lose the freshness. Mm-hmm. There's a freshness within the first or second take that you'll never get again. And it was that way also when he did uh, action scenes. Now, granted, he let stunt people, you know, rehearse it and square it out and figure out what they wanted to do. But when it came to filming, 
he kept the cameras rolling. There's a great scene in Searchers where they're going across the river and the Indians are right on their tail and Ward Vaughn's horse stepped in yeah. the hole and dumped yeah, them in yeah, the river. Yeah, yeah. And Ford kept it in. Most directors would say, cut, 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 let's go back. Ford kept it in because it adds to the tension. Like, oh my God, he fell in the river. The Indians are on your tail. But he would always do that because he always said, you don't know what you're going to get. Isn't that something kind of a leftover from the silent days too, though? Oh I, God, yeah. I can remember, yes. I can remember a Tim McCoy thing where he's chasing the bad guy and the bad guy comes out of the woods and rides across this meadow. And then here comes the colonel in hot pursuit, and about halfway across the meadow, the horse goes down. He stays with the horse, gets it back up, and rides it out of the shot. Like you say, nowadays, they'd do it over again, because it wasn't oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah, no, they did, they did that, you know, and he, it gives, not just the freshness, but it gives, a, a, it can add to the scene mm-hmm. in ways that you couldn't plan on. It's a re, it's a real color and not and not uh, something that was passed pasted on. Todd, did you have no. something? No. Well, I, I was saying that that you know Michael was talking about not allowing the producers to mess it up. And, uh, Can you turn your volume up, Todd? Yeah, turn up your volume, Todd. Okay. Uh, how's that? Well, I, we seem to have, we seem to have lost you here for a moment. Not sure what's going on. Seemed kind of ghostly. Well, uh, Michael, uh, how much better? influence do you think no, Marno okay. had on him? Let's go ahead and reconnect, Todd. Okay. All right. Okay. Oh, okay. Did you get that? Did you catch it? Marno, how much influence did he have? Because he seemed to have had uh, you know, an influence, definitely, you know, because especially on the, after he saw saw uh, the Marno film and, and his next couple of films. Oh, yeah. You can well, see everybody... It. Everybody was influenced by Murnau uh, at that point. But yeah, Ford did with his movie Ford Sons. I'm going to give a plug about a DVD set. It's now been, oh geez, it's got to be at least 10, 15 years ago it came out. But it was a huge box set when DVDs were doing great stuff. And it's called Ford at Fox. Mm. And it's got every film Ford made at Fox. Awesome. And it has four sons. It has Iron Horse. It has three three bad men. It has uh, Prisoner of Shark Island. It, it's got everything everything that's existing that isn't lost, it's there mm-hmm. uh, in, in the collection. Okay, Todd, try, try it again, Todd. So do you hear me now? Not that very well. I don't know what's going on. Can you hear him, Michael? Uh, I slightly. Hey, let's just put some uh, silent uh, title cards up for Todd. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so hold on, hold on. How's that? No. I don't know what happened. It sounds sounds like you're way far away no, in the better? other room. No, no. He's it's probably in Monument Valley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wish I was too. Yeah. Yeah, well, me too. Yeah. Well, give it a shot anyway, Todd. Well, what I was going to say is that. Uh, um, you know, there is a uh, an attitude of Ford that he, where he says, you know, Michael said the producers, but Ford talks about not allowing the committee to stick, it, to stick its fingers in the pie. As it were. And he's talking about the producers. He says, I don't want to shoot too much. 
because the more I shoot, the more it's going to end up on the floor of the cutting room yeah. in editor's bay. And I think that that's important. He also said something that's so prolific to this day, which is that uh, he said, I fear that we're starting to lose our storytelling ability that uh, oh, I guess. directors are utilizing uh, dialogue and and so on. And uh, he said, I, I believe that directors should rely on action. Uh, good storytellers can rely on action and less words. And that was just when the silence ended and the talkie started, he said that. Yeah. Well, look, let's, I'm going to take, give you an example. You take, if you had a filmmaker daring to remake The Searchers, okay, and you have that scene where Ethan uh, gets the hat from Martha and the coat and kisses her, okay, a director today, especially an idiot like Tarantino, um, he'd rip the dress he off. Would, he, he would, he, there, there'd be a, there'd be a page of dialogue expressing the feelings where Ford and in the shooting script of Searchers there is a scene when Martha's reaching up to the mantle to take the lamp and Wayne and her hand meet and he looks at her hand and says you always work hard or something to that effect well Ford just yanked it out you don't need it that look when they hold the, the lamp lamp and then that whole scene where she gives him the coat and he kisses her and Ward Bond is staring yes. dead ahead like like trying to be invisible and, I didn't see it. <laughs> and you know that he knows the background of them. Yeah. 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 You know. But that that was the genius of Ford. He could literally take a script, as Wayne said, and he pulled words out and say, All right, let's cut this line out. You can say this, you say this, take this out. And he, but you still had not the essence, but the bone of the scene. He cut out the fat and he left you with the meat and the bone of the scene. And sometimes he'd even say, Don't say that, just do this. Mm-hmm. And it got it across. You know, I think one of the things about him is he trusted the audience to make up its mind about what was happening. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I yes. think that that's perfectly exemplified and illustrated when he doesn't show you the bodies of Ethan's family in the searchers after the massacre. No, oh my, yeah. oh my God, know. there's that great scene. That great you know, scene where he's in the cameras inside that smoke room house. Right. And when right. he's standing there in the shadow and he holds her dress and he drops it. And walks to the doorway again. Yes. We're in the doorway again, and just his reaction. You don't need anything else. You right. don't and need to see people getting killed. You know what's going to happen. Your point is so well taken, Michael. Because today the director would show oh. the women being raped and ravaged, and the men oh, being yeah. disemboweled, and so on and so forth. And it, it, it why take the mystery away? Yeah. The mystery well, in that scene creates terror in the mind of the viewer because it's it's wherever your mind goes to the worst possible scenario that's the great joke about the movie uh ghostbusters when they're like okay don't think about anything negative and the one guy thinks about his greatest fear which is the big fat marshmallow man that was his terror as a child that's where the mind goes to well you know today filmmakers 
I don't think they trust their audience. And back then, you had filmmakers, again, we go back to the silent era, because in the silent era... Speaking of the silent era, we need to be silent for just a tiny minute for our next commercial break. Thank you. That's a very good transition. We'll be back with much more of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. We're talking about John Ford movies here on Movie Saturday. Harry Alexander, Bunker de France, Todd Roberts. Our guest is Michael F. Blake film historian. We'll be back with much more right after these important messages. Stay tuned. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true way a large number of westerns were filmed. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 72. That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallion.com or call 520-297-0252. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club is one of the best-kept economic secrets in town. This 900-member group maintains one of the finest shotgun shooting ranges in the country, featuring trap, skeet, five-stand, and sporting clays fields, and hosts national and international events that bring thousands of people and millions of dollars into our community. The Spring Satellite Grand American Tournament alone involves 1,200 participants for 10 days. Learn more about this and their other contributions to our community at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. As we recognize the service of America's men and women in uniform, let's also honor the families who sacrifice so much every day. Military families endure frequent deployments and separations. They carry on while their loved ones are sent into harm's way and wait patiently for their safe return. If you really want to honor a veteran, look for ways to support their families and thank them for their sacrifices. Go to legion.org slash honor veterans to find out how you can help. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond checking stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. Sam told me you boys were back. Why didn't you go with the Phantom? Frontier figured Evans and the girl took a back trail. He wanted to go after them alone, so he sent us back with a buckboard and the old gent. What happened to Jeff? He won't be helping Evans and the girl to escape anymore. By now, he's just another customer for Boot Hill. This is the Voices of the West. When it's two days born, I go riding, yippee For the wide open plains I roam, yippee Till the sun to the hills goes high, yippee There will always be someone right when I come home, 
was the voice of Festus Hagen. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. Ken Curtis, Cowboy Has to Sing. Welcome back to Abel Francis, Voices of the West. Harry Alexander with you. Um, and uh, Bunker to France, Todd Roberts is in Los Angeles. Our guest, Michael F. Blake, film historian. We are at Movie Saturday here at the uh, White Stallion Ranch, the last Saturday of every month we're out here. and uh, John Ford would have loved this place. He, yeah, I, John Ford would have loved this place, big time. Uh, I don't think it would have taken over, uh, uh, I don't think it would have um, beaten Monument Valley, but... No, uh, the only anyway, place that can beat Monument Valley is New Mon- Mexico, Monument, that's because well, I'm prejudiced. Well, no, the only place that can beat Monument Valley is Monument Valley. Well, that's only that's right. Yeah. Well, so, Michael, you were about to say something about silence. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now I can't. Ambushed. <laughs> but, uh, well, I got a John Ford story I love to tell. Please. Yes, please. When Peter Bogdanovich, who was a, a great film historian, storyteller, could do a spot-on imitation of Ford or Howard Hawks or Cary Grant, um, when he was interviewing him for his uh, documentary directed by John Ford, there's a series of shots at John Ford Point in Monument Valley where he's asking Ford questions. And he says, Mr. Ford, uh, in Three Bad Men, you filmed uh, The Great Land Rush. Uh, how did you film it? And without missing a beat, Ford goes, with a camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I got a Stan Jones story I've got to tell please, you. Please, please. Uh, since I've been working on this chapter on the Rio Grande thing and writing right now about Stan Jones. Stan Jones had been a park ranger in various places. And in 1948, he's the park ranger at Death Valley. And Ford goes out there to shoot uh, Three Godfathers. And there's a scene where they've run out of water and Wayne takes a machete and whacks off the top of a barrel cactus, reaches in, grabs some pulp, and squeezes water out of the pulp into a canteen. Right in the middle of the take, Jones goes, you can't get water out of that cactus. And everybody throws <laughs> on the set because Stan Jones had just violated the number one command, unspoken commandment on Ford's set. You don't <laughs> contradict the old man. Ah. So Ford asked me, what the hell makes you such a, a, a authority on cactus? He says, well, that's a barrel hit cactus. You can't get water out of it. And Ford kind of let it drop and went on to shoot another shot. End of the day, they go go back to the hotel. Next day, they come back to pick up the cactus scene. And he has Wayne whack, you know, do it again, takes the pulp out, and now he's squeezing water out of the pulp. And he turns, Ford turns to Stan Jones and goes, hmm. Cactus had water in it. Well, <laughs> Jones didn't was smart enough not to take Ford's bait, just kind of laughed it off. <laughs> what Jones didn't know was Ford had one of the crew members take that barrel head cactus and stick it in a bucket of water and soak it all night. <laughs> now, 
Some people may not know the name Stan Jones, but if I said to you the song Ghost Riders in the Sky, you'd know who he was. And Stan had been writing songs while he was a park ranger, and Randolph Scott was working on a movie in Death Valley there, and he and Jones struck up a, a conversation, and he helped Jones come out to L.A. and find somebody who'd be interested in his music and Burl Ives did the first cut of it which was successful but Von Monroe's version is what really took off Mm -hmm. and made Stan very famous well uh, just before they're about to shoot Wagon Master Harry Carey uh, Jr. gets a call from George O'Brien says come over to the house come over to the house and there's Stan Jones and Stan remembered Dobie from being there in Death Valley on Three Godfathers. And Stan sings Ghost Riders in the Sky, and George says, you think the old man would like to hear it? And they said, yeah. So he calls up the old man, and they go over to Ford's office, and going in, Carrie warns him, don't say anything about the cactus. Uh, <laughs> and Stan sings Ghost Riders on, uh, on, in the Sky on his guitar, and then does another song called Rolling Dust, and Ford turns to him and he says, can you write me two or three songs uh, for the movie, they won't be singing so much as just background music. Can you do it? And Jones says, I'm going to have three songs written by tomorrow night. <laughs> so he recommends the Ford. He says, you ever heard of Sons of the Pioneers? And Ford goes, no. And he says, well, you know, they're really great singers. You should listen to them. Well, when they come back from location, he has Ford. Ford has Stan Jones bringing Sons of the Pioneers. And in walks into the recording studio, in, in they walk, and Ford's daughter, Barbara Ford, takes one look at King Curtis and fell in love. Needless to say, they married a couple of years later. Well, Ford fell in love with Sons of the Pioneers, mm-hmm. because you'll hear their songs in Wagon Master, they're singing it, and in um, uh, uh, Rio Grande, they're the regimental singers. Uh, And they're also they're also in uh, uh, the searchers. There's a little guy in there who was part of at that time the Sons of the Pioneers by the name of Shug Fisher. Yes, everybody will know. They may not know the name, but they'll know Shug. He was in God knows how many movies, and he was great at having an act stuttering. Yeah, and he makes his first appearance as an actor as one of the buglers in Rio Grande, and he does the stuttering gag. Um, Jones goes on to write songs for The Searchers, one of the greatest songs I think ever written, I Left My Love for the Horse Soldiers, Mm -hmm. and he also wrote a tune for a TV series called Cheyenne. And in The Horse Soldiers, Jones plays General Grant in the beginning of the film, and he's also a sergeant in Rio Grande, but he has no dialogue. If you see a guy who looks a lot like Jack Parr, that's Stan Jones, and he's got the sergeant stripes. Wow. Well, I've got a, a, uh, I think it's one of my favorite John Ford stories is when uh, Jimmy Stewart was uh, going to do Man Who Shot Liberty Ballot. And he's at the studio, you know, doing the wardrobe test and everything. And and he doesn't like the hat that the wardrobe man has given him. So he goes up to Ford and he goes, uh, uh, Mr. Ford, uh, you know, I've got this old hat I wear all the time. And I'd really like to wear it in your movie. And Ford says, OK, Jimmy, you can wear it. If you watch the movie, he never wears a hat the whole movie. 
That's right. Well, you know, a great story about with Ford was every day somebody on the set was what they called in the barrel with uh-huh. the old man. Uh, generally, it was it was uh, he'd pick on an actor. Very rarely did he pick on the the crew, except wardrobe or props if they didn't have something he wanted. But the actors, he would pick on you endlessly. And my dad, who had worked with him, said he'd pick on you and pick on you and pick on you about the least tiny little thing. But he'd get you so angry at him that when it came time to shoot your scene, you were like, I'm going to give this SOB a good (laughs) performance just to show him. And he used to do that. He did that with Jimmy. And then he'd just do it sometimes just to get get people in trouble. He was a bright when they were doing I started laughing about Man Who Shot Liberty Balance with your story because I thought you were going to tell the story about so the whole time they're shooting Jimmy Stewart isn't in the barrel uh, and Wayne's him, <laughs> how the heck do you get away with this? The old man is picking on the rest of us and you're getting away with it. And Stewart said I don't know and he said but he admitted he started feeling a little smug so one day, uh, Ford calls him over and he asks him, he says, uh, what do you think of Woody Strode's uh, wardrobe? And Stewart said, I have no idea why I said it. I, I don't know, but I said, well, it looks a little Uncle Ramesy to me. And Ford just stared at him for a moment. <laughs> he called everyone over and says, uh, can I have everybody's attention, please? Attention. And he said, um, uh, Mr. Stewart, you know, I don't know what his beliefs are in civil rights and stuff, but Mr. Stewart has made a comment that uh, he thinks Woody's uh, costume is a little Uncle Ramesy. And he says, I don't know what his, uh, if he's racist or not, but um, that's what he said. And he said, all right, let's go back to work. And Stewart said, I wanted to crawl into a hole. <laughs> and Wayne was smiling like the cat who ate the canary, walked by Stewart and said, welcome to the club. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Well, that, that reminds me, of course, of the great story Patrick Wayne told us on the show about when uh, he was on the set of, uh, of the uh, Searchers and uh, uh, Jeffrey Hunter was walking around whistling on the set and Ford was very superstitious old Hollywood of course oh yeah he didn't like anybody whistling on the set so he got his bullhorn and walked up about oh five to ten feet behind Jeffrey Hunter and Hunter didn't see him and full blast full volume out of the out of the bullhorn he said could somebody please get that son of a bitch who's whistling on my set to stop whistling on my set and (laughs) At that point, Je- uh, Jeffrey Hunter just kind of shrank as if he was about as big as an ant and went and hid yeah. somewhere for about a four or five hours. Fellas, we got to yeah. take an, another break here. We're uh, over that. so uh, over I hate the these breaks. I, I want to hear Michael. I want to hear it all, too, but, you know, this is no, how we... Ahead. This is how we... Uh, Make our living. Make our meager living. Pay the bills. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> You're in tune with 
Uh, Mabel Francie's Voices of the West. We'll be back with much more after this. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. The Polash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Polash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, first. Contact the Polash Management Company today at polashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Polash Management Company. Property managers you can trust. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club dates from 1948 and is now at 7800 West Ole Ajo Highway. The club owns 80 acres and leases 300 more from Pima County that supports 50 trap fields, 15 ski fields, two five-stand fields, two sporting plays courses with 12 stations each, a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, 200 full-service RV hookups for members, and free Wi-Fi. This expansive facility gives enough room to host major national and international events annually, bringing thousands of people to the community. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSki.com. You've got some cattle you want rustled, but don't have enough henchmen of your own to do the job. Little lady up the road a piece won't strike a deal with you about water rights. You out there! Come one step near and old best here will spit right in your eye. So you need to strike your own deal, but you need the right henchman to do the job. The stage is hauling a Wells Fargo box loaded with gold. You've got the perfect spot to liberate that gold, but blank henchmen to pull off the job. What to do? You better start packing a handgun. Call Red a Hench. We're a bad guy rental agency. We provide you with enough scrappy henchmen to tackle any job with specific directions. Just listen to what Red a Hench users have to say. Well, you know, when I joined Red a Hench, I was trained by Bud Osborne, Charlie King, and some of the best head henches there ever was. And I'm going to guarantee you that you cannot hench without the proper henches around you. And that's just a gentle hench. When you need sheer numbers of henchmen, call us. We specialize in stage holdups, water right disputes, squatter troubles, cattle rustling, and much more. Our rent henchmen may not be able to think their way out of a paper bag, but they sure can follow directions, and they won't sing to the law about you if they get caught. See our ad in the Saturday Evening Post or Harper's Weekly. Hey, not only that, when you're in the Long Branch and you want to go next door to Doc's to get that bullet out of your shoulder, get a rent hench to sit there on your place and keep your whiskey warm while you're gone. Red a hench, when you need bad guys to do bad guy stuff so you can keep your hands clean. You let me do the work. Merry Christmas from the Voices of the West. Coming to you from the great southwestern United States. Are you going to pull those pistols and whistle Dixie? This is the Voices of the West. 
We can do Christmas a little early or a little hey. late. It doesn't matter. Well, you know, it's, it, to me, Groundhog's Day is Christmas. You that's know, coming up. You know, whatever. I love Groundhog's It's just another day. Welcome back to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander with you along with uh, Bunker de France, Todd Robertson, Los Angeles, our guest, Michael F. Blake, film historian. We are talking about the films of the great director, uh, John Ford. Let's jump into the Wayback Machine here for a minute. To uh, the silence. Well, I want to talk about Harry Carey and Olive Carey, especially Olive. She knew Ford before Harry did. That's right. And she was there at the very beginning. And when she describes John Ford, it's not the John Ford that we've come to know and you know the curmudgeon and the grump. He's like he's like he's a he's a wonderful guy. He's got a sense of humor and full of and it got me thinking. When he was working with Harry Carey, because Harry Carey, Ford wasn't the boss. Carey was the boss. Well, Carey was yeah. older, too. Yeah. And, I, and I'm and i just thinking, that not that, thinking, that I'm positive that Carey had a tremendous influence oh, yeah. on him. I think so. As far, as far as character and also the directing. I think so. Yes, very much so. Um, he and Carey both would sit down and write out stories and... Uh, it was it was a it was an early version it, it was an early reverse version of the Wayne and Ford relationship. Right. Uh, with Carrie and Ford, Carrie was the older guy guiding Ford, and then when you come to Wayne and Ford, Ford was the older guy guiding Wayne. Uh, but it's very significant, and uh, he uh, it was. That's where Ford learned to tell stories and learned how to make stories. And he learned a lot from, he learned a lot because they shot most of the stuff out by uh, Harry Carey's ranch out in yeah. the Newhall Foggis area. Santa Clarita Valley. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but then of course, Harry was getting more money and Ford was getting, I think about the time, about maybe $300 a week out of Universal. Yeah. And he got his nose out of joint because he felt, well, I'm, you know, putting more stuff in here and helping the company, the, the studio, well, I should get more money. And he wound up leaving and went to Fox where he stayed uh up through this, the just before World War II, he had when Zanuck came in, Zanuck made a new contract with him, and he had a non-exclusive contract that if he wanted to go off and make another film for a studio, as long as he met his his uh, requirements at Fox, he could do it, and that's why Ford goes off to RKO to do the Lost Patrol and the Informer. And you know the the Ford stock company really starts with Carey too, because you look yes. at the guys that were in there, and they carry Victor Pegg. He's all the way up there at stagecoach, you know. Vester, Vester, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Well, and you also had um, he went by his birth name, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but we know him as William Steele, and he he started in the teens with Ford and Carey and most people remember him he plays Bagby who gets 
shot in the soul, the shoulder, and when in the searchers when they're chased across the river, <clears throat> Lord Bond gives them the Bible and he says, "Here, hold my Bible to make you feel good." And he oh, yeah, says, yeah. "Thank you, Reverend. Thank you very much." Can you tell I've watched the movie a few times? Yeah, I think. And <laughs> that's but but he was in a lot of Ford films. He's also in She Wore a Yellow Ribbon. So. Uh, yeah, so that's where you're right. It, that's where the stock company started, yeah. and uh, it just was. You know, people wonder, well, why did somebody do? Well, Capra had people he liked. William Wellman always found a part for uh, the actor George Chandler because uh, he he trusted him, and it, it's the directors knew what those actors could do, and he uh, developed a shorthand with them. That he didn't have to sit there and explain for ten minutes what he needed for the scene. Well, uh, in many cases, you know, my dad worked for some directors that would just say, "All right, Larry, you need to do this." And if my dad was playing an auctioneer, uh, they'd let my dad ad lib stuff until the dialogue came in because he he knew what to do, and they didn't yeah. have to sit there and spend ten minutes of the day to explain it. Ford also was good at. Um Bringing on new talent, uh, discovering new talent. George O'Brien uh, yes. is is one uh, actor who, uh, in, in the Iron Horse, uh, Ford took a chance yep. on him, and that's a great chance. Well, here's, yeah. here's one for you too. His combination with Will Rogers, if Will Rogers hadn't died when he did, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, that was one of the most perfect teamings ever yeah. because they both worked. That you know, with Rogers, you know, it was like, don't give him a script, just give him an idea of what you want to let him say. go. Yeah, and yeah. He oh yeah, yeah. Which of course played havoc with the script supervisor, but and and Ford was crushed when uh, Rogers passed yeah. away because uh, he directed Rogers' last movie, uh, Steamship yeah. Around the Bend. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he he that was another one. You just imagine if Rogers had lived longer, what they could have done. Well, you know, and I, I was, I've, uh, I've been watching a lot of the uh, Hoot Gibson uh, films that he did with Harry Carey and John Ford, and there were as many as that can be found, and they are just, well, they're a hoot. <laughs> I mean, yeah. they are just so good. There's one, and I, I get them confused, and I can't remember if it's straight shooting or hellbent. Um, I, I think it... Well, in any event, uh, Hooters in that one. He gets the girl. Yeah, he gets the girl. Yeah, but uh, there's yeah. there's a great scene in there, a comedic scene where they're after Cheyenne Harry, and he's hiding in a tree, whilst the sheriff is pounding up a, a wanted poster, and the oh, sheriff yeah. takes off, and then uh, you, you're watching the uh, the the scene of the tree, and out pops Harry Carey and looks at the. <laughs> the wanted poster and pulls it off and just starts laughing. Yeah. I mean, they're so good. So well, good. well, you know that's and that's that scene is somewhat similar to the scene in the movie The Fugitive, a yeah. beautifully shot movie. Oh, but, yeah, one of his favorites. You know, very symbolic. And and Ward Bond, there's a Ward poster for him, and Ward Bond draws a pair of glasses on his face. On the <laughs> <Right. video. laughs> well, here's a piece of real trivia, trivia for him. You know, Ford's first acting job was in The Mysterious Rose, as Jack Ford, of course. And all most places you see it, his character's name is Dopey. Yeah. Well, I come to find out that the character's name was Bull Finney. Ah. His real name, you know. His, ah. man, I thought that was so cool. Todd, what do you got? Well, I, you know, I, I want to ask Michael to share his opinion on this and 
how unconventional Ford was in the way that everybody else was directing. Number one, in regards to film, he didn't shoot a lot of film, as we discussed earlier. He also preferred to use a piece of music from the period or close to the period mm-hmm. and use that music continuously through the film in different ways, whether sometimes with words in the lyrics or other times not, other times playing it slow or just little snippets of it, other times playing it fast and loud and dramatic. And I just think that, you know, he kind of went against the grain, but I find him personally, and I, I concur with all of you, that he's, to in my opinion, the greatest storyteller we ever had. Oh, yeah, he was. And he just, uh, he just, he had an instinct that it's, it's hard to describe it. It's hard to say, well, how did Ford direct? And it was like, he went by instinct. He knew, he, he knew what his people could do. And he would, and Wayne often said, he'd pick on you on minor scenes, like the, the scene at Stagecoach when he's washing his face and, Wayne, he kept picking on Wayne. How can you wash your face? Blah, 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 blah. And then he said, but then for the real emotional scenes, he treated you like a baby. Hmm. You know, he just mm-hmm. handled you so carefully. Uh, he just, uh, the man was a genius, you know. And in, in my book, he is the greatest director of American cinema. And I know that's argumentative. Some people, you know, people have, but. The man has won four Oscars for Best Director, a record that has never been topped. Mm-hmm. And if you want to count, he actually has six Oscars because he has two Oscars mm-hmm. for Best Short Subject, Battle of Midway, yep. in December 7th. Yep. So, you know, let's see uh, other people try to top that. And then look uh, at all the other awards he got. I mean, they are oh, amazing. Well, you know, he, the Life he Achievement Awards, DGA, Golden yeah. Globe, Special yeah. Matters. You know, uh, well, before David Lean shot a frame of film for Lawrence The script that was ever written was yeah, he, uh, The Searchers. And, and Kurosawa says that no one influenced me more than Ford did. Absolutely. Steven Spielberg, when he won his Lifetime Achievement Award, said, I think... He thanked Ford personally. He also thanked yeah. uh, uh, Truffaut and Hitchcock as well. But, I mean, it, the list goes on and on. Yeah. Uh, who, who, did, who did Orson Welles love to watch films of more John than anybody Ford. else? John Ford. Right. He watched Stagecoach 40 times before he did yeah, Citizen you, Kane. You, That's right. You watch, you watch Stagecoach and then watch Citizen Kane, and I defy anybody to tell me that, that uh, Welles did not copy Ford's work. And I mean that in a good way. I don't mean it in a bad way. Yeah. But he was so influenced by Ford's work. Guys, we gotta you do know? our we gotta do our final break here. So hang on, Michael. Michael F. Blake okay. is our guest uh, on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. It's movie Saturday at the White Stallion Ranch. That's where we're streaming live from. And our topic is John Ford movies. So we'll do uh, the last commercial break and come back with a wrap up. Arizona, the land of cattle, copper, and cowboys. It's also the true west where a large number of westerns were built. For your next vacation, come out to where Wyatt Earp made a name for himself as a highly respected sheriff. Stay where Jimmy Stewart filmed Winchester 73. 
That would be the White Stallion Ranch. Situated in the mountains just northwest of Tucson, the White Stallion Ranch is an award-winning dude ranch with 43 guest rooms and the Hacienda. That's a five-bedroom, three-bathroom home, perfect for larger families, family reunions, and girlfriend getaways. Every guest room has a private patio with views of the cactus gardens, mountains, or corrals. Generous floor plans offer sunny, comfortable rooms, but you won't want to stay in your room. Outdoor activities are plentiful at the White Stallion Ranch. Horseback riding, hiking, shooting, archery, rock climbing, e-biking, and a weekly ranch rodeo are among the numerous activities that you'll enjoy on your ranch vacation. Go Western for your next getaway. The White Stallion Ranch. Book your vacation now online at whitestallion.com or call 520-297-0252. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. Besides bringing millions a year into this community with national and international events, the Tucson Trap and Skeet Club at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway services the local shooting sports community with a 380-acre site featuring trap, skeet, five-stand, and two sporting clays fields, as well as a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, which all is available to local shooters, and soon an archery range. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com or take a drive out west of town and see it for yourself. New members or single-day use, welcome. You've got to the count of three to say your prayers. Then I'm going to finish you off. One, two. This is the Voices of the West. I'm just a tumbleweed cowboy. A cloud is the roof for my head. I rock along in the saddle all day. <laughs> the cool prairie grass is my bed. We're back on Abel Francis' Voices of the West. A bit of Ray Whitley there, Tumbleweed Cowboy. He is just as prolific, or was just as prolific as Dan Jones, I think. Well, I'm just a stumbleweed cowboy. That's <laughs> because you're a retired stuntman. Uh, we're back on Abel Francis' Voices of the West, and uh, we're talking about John Ford movies. Uh, in the final throws of the program here, you know, if you will. And one thing we haven't mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, is that Ford didn't like to move the camera. He really liked a, a, a st- steady static shot. camera. And you don't find a better example of that than Wagon Master. And it's got some of the most beautiful shots in all of his movies. And that's what the topic here has to be now, uh, Michael, is what is your favorite John Ford movie? And don't tell me it's one of the trilogies. <laughs> yes. Oh, it shows it, number first place. First place is tied to the Searchers and Shavori Yellow Ribbon. Okay, yeah. and then it would be my darling Clementine, uh, Wagon Master, Stagecoach, of course, Vanish Shot Liberty Valance, mm-hmm. um, Last Hurrah is a tremendous favorite of mine. I just love it. Uh, it makes me wish he and Spencer Tracy did more films together. 
even though it has flaws, I do like uh, Cheyenne Autumn. That mm -hmm. was the very first movie I ever saw of John Ford's. My dad took me when it came out. It was playing a roadshow engagement at the Pantages Theater in Hollywood. And the one thing I remember most about that when I was a kid was Festus was in it. <laughs> I, remember, <laughs> I remember when Ken Curry, at that time, I had no idea who John Ford was. But when Ken Curry's came on the screen, I turned to my dad and I said, that's Festus. And he's like, yeah, 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 watch the movie. <laughs> well, yeah, and going back to Ford and, and getting actors their start, uh, Up the River, a great film. Uh, with uh, Humphrey Bogart and Spencer Tracy. Yeah. That's their yep. uh, yep. both of their film debut. And, oh, my God, what a good movie. Well, you know, speaking yeah. of... Not a Western, but a great movie. Speaking of your first John Ford movie, my first John Ford movie was The Informer. And oh, yeah. I fell in love with that movie, and I'm still in love with it today. I think my favorite is going to be uh, Wagon Master. I just love that movie. Yeah. You know, oh, Wagon Master is my number two. Starts is number one, Yeah. But. What's your favorite, Todd? Oh, I still, you know, I'm I'm overly prejudiced. Uh, Lee Marvin loved My Darling Clementine, and uh, my dad loved My Darling Clementine, and Lee studied that film. He probably watched it 40 times, 50 times, especially for the scene on the porch, which is what he used as inspiration as his scene mm. on the porch in Monty Walsh. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. I still say it's the most beautifully photographed film I've ever seen oh, uh, it's, in it's, black it's and white. Uh, it still is right up there and competes with everything else that Ford did in Monument Valley, even though it's in color. The others are in color. I, I'm a big, big uh, Searchers fan, of course, as well. It, it still stirs me. I can't watch the, the closing scene without a tear in my eye. Mm. Um, yeah. And you remember, Michael, that you and I went to a, uh, a, a <laughs> film festival and uh, of, of five great films, and we saw The Searchers together. I, didn't, I had called you and left a message and said, are we going to go? And you never called me back. But then I'm sitting in the theater by myself, and the film ends, and all of a sudden they say, well, we'd like to open it up for questions. Does anybody have any comments? And the two uh, 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 journalists from the New York Times started talking. And then there was a lull in silence. Anybody have any questions or comments? And all of a sudden I hear this voice from behind me. And it's Michael Blake telling these two guys in the most polite way ever that I've ever heard, um, both of you are either morons or fools. Which is it? Um, and, you know, and I'm listening to this, 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 this voice and I'm, I'm conflicted because, number one, I'm like listening to myself. It's how I feel in my head and in my heart. Simultaneously, the voice is saying, uh, I'm, my head is, and my heart are saying, you know that voice. Who is that? Who is that? And I turn around, and it's Michael. And he just gives me this little bit of a, a half, like half of a hand, two-fingered wave. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. And we just kept talking. And, you know, the guy, the one guy said, well, you know, uh, uh, at the end of the searches, you know, Ethan, he can't go in the room. He can't, he can't go in the house. He's terrified. It's the kryptonite. Of, of his, it's, it's Ethan's kryptonite. He can't walk in there. And I kept listening, and I, at that point, I waited for Michael to chime in. He didn't say anything, and I, I literally was bursting. Mm -hmm. And I, I chimed in, and I said, no, it's not that he can't go in. 
It's that he doesn't want to go in. He right. he's not. He doesn't feel comfortable. It his job is done. He is uh, the character that is never has no lines and has no action. He is the character of the body of the Indian in the grave, which is he shoots his eyes out and he says, "Now he's destined to wander between the winds." Ethan, Ethan is yeah. destined to wander between the winds. And with yeah. that, we yeah. have to close it out, guys. I guess great. we're between the winds. Now. We're Let's between do this the winds. Again soon. Yes, sir. Please, great, please. Great, uh, great topic, Michael. Thank you so much thank for joining you, us you, this Michael. afternoon. Appreciate oh, so it very much, guys. So. I really do. It's great hearing your voices. Yes, yeah. indeed, and. Uh, We'll, we will definitely do this again. Uh, thanks again for listening to another edition of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. Harry Alexander, Bunker to France, and Todd Roberts. Till next time, we have Bill Markley up next week. 78, 79, 40, and 80 years. So long, everybody. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. 